I think the law just represents, it's so vague that it's the perfect conduit for the moral panic of an era. So in the 90s and the 80s, it was crack houses and like, you know, properties of black people. And then in the 2000s, it was like parties because that was the moral panic of the day. And then like now it's supervised injection site and tomorrow they'll find a reason to apply that on like Juul or whatever, right? Because you find what you're panicking about and you apply the statue to. listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello, Narcotica listeners. Welcome to the program. I'm Troy Farah, beaming to you from the high desert, and we've got big news for you all. On Wednesday, October 2nd, a federal judge ruled that Safe House, a proposed supervised consumption site in Philadelphia, does not violate federal law. This is a big win for the harm reduction movement, but the fight is far from over. Before we get into all that, we want to tell you about the upcoming International Drug Policy Reform Conference in beautiful St. Louis this November. There will be thousands of people there dedicated to one cause, ending the disastrous war on drugs that is in all reality just a war on people. The conference is from November 6th to November 9th, and Narcotica will be there with stickers and stuff, all thanks to our generous patrons who make this program possible. Go to reformconference.org now to learn more about the International Drug Policy Reform Conference in St. Louis, November 6th to 9th. And by the way, if you go into the Narcotica archives, we covered the topic of supervised consumption back in episode four with Laura Thomas, formerly of the Drug Policy Alliance, and we discussed how the Department of Justice has threatened to go after anyone who opens up one of these sites that led to this court case and this decision. It's a pretty good episode, although we sound a lot better now, so go check it out. Today on the show, we've got Narcotica co-host Zachary Siegel beaming in from Iowa City and Chris Moraff in Philly with Abraham Gutman an editorial writer at the Philadelphia Inquirer who has been covering the topic of supervised consumption for a while. Everyone, welcome to the program. Hello. So now the, the DOJ is saying they're, quote, disappointed in the court's ruling and will take all available steps to pursue further judicial review. Any attempt to open illicit drug injection sites in other jurisdictions while this case is still pending will continue to be met with immediate action by the department. And so that's a quote from the, the DOJ, which is basically legalese for don't open an injection site because we'll sue your ass. So Abraham, can you give us some basic background on this fight in Philadelphia and uh, why it isn't over yet? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is um, this is like a big thing on my bucket list of you have my favorite podcast. So this is huge for me. So thank you. So yeah, so this whole started... Um, obviously a long time ago with a lot of harm reduction uh, activists who have been pushing for this for, for years, if not decades. But the formal story starts in January of 2018 when the city of Philadelphia gives this kind of confusing announcement that they're going to give a green light to entities, private entities, to open a supervised consumption site, but the city itself will not operate it, nor will give any funding towards it. So half of the city heard we're not going to actually do this. The other half of the city heard it's opening right now in your own home and you're paying for it. A lot of outrage, a lot of anxiety, a lot of misunderstanding and a ton of misinformation uh, in the upcoming month, but kind of like every conversation without 
any development that was seen on the ground, the conversation kind of subsided away uh, until October of 2018, when former governor, Pennsylvania governor, Philadelphia mayor, Ed Rendell announced that he is joining forces with two of kind of some of the most prominent harm reduction leaders in Philadelphia, Jose Benitez, who is the uh, executive director of the um, city's only syringe exchange prevention point, and um, Rhonda Goldfein, who is the executive director of the AID, Pennsylvania AIDS Law Project. And they're going to open a nonprofit that will open a supervised injection site. And again, all hell broke loose because people heard in your home today, you know, people are giving away drugs. Um, and a few months after, in February, um, Trump appointed U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. William McSwain decided to file a lawsuit asking a judge with no court case, with no hearing, just, you know, to declare this an illegal activity. Seyfal said, we want a hearing. Judge said, seems reasonable. And then in the summer, we had, in August, we had an evidentiary hearing in which there was a discussion about what a safe house would look like. And then in the uh, in September, we had a oral argument in which each side argued with the judge about the merits of the law, not the merits of the policy. And then yesterday, we got a ruling. Yeah, thank you for that. That's... Uh... That brings us up to speed. And so that ruling, like, you know, Troy was said in the intro, is that basically like safe house does not violate uh, this, you know, obscure provision of the Controlled Substances Act called the Crack House Statute. And uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's big, right? Like, like, Chris, you're on the ground in Philly, and you're talking to a lot of people about this. What's 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 the vibes in Philly? like after this ruling? Yeah, well, so I've been pretty much on this from the beginning. And I, I, I guess I would go a little bit further back to um, the uh, the mayor's opioid task force, uh, oh. which convened in 2017 and and sort of punted this this issue of supervised injection. Um, and that and that conversation was reignited um, by the campaign of D.A. Larry Krasner, um, who really brought uh, the opioid crisis or the overdose crisis front and center. Uh, without without Krasner's election, um, I'm not sure if the mayor would have uh, would have switched on this. In fact, at the press conference, um, it was it was quite it was really quite an ad hoc sort of press conference. The mayor wasn't even there. His managing director was there. Uh, they weren't really prepared to answer questions <laughs> like the one I asked, which was so basically you're saying somebody could open one of these tomorrow and you'd be okay with it and. It was kind of you know a non-answer response. Uh, so I, I think that the the um, administration felt pressure uh, by the election of Krasner to to make a move, and then and they went shortly thereafter to uh, Vancouver. Um, now I spent a lot of time prior to that among uh, sort of young harm reduction activists that were planning on doing this anyway. Um, and, you know, among more interesting things to come out of the, uh, the, uh, hearing, uh, I think that was the second hearing was, you know, this dialogue on when, you know, there's sort of plausible deniability, which was a big discussion around, uh, the doctors and nurses and, and activists that were putting this together, you know, like, and, you know, one of the things that came up, the judge actually mentioned himself, which was, you know, ha is it illegal if you have a service site over here? And then somebody goes over there across the street in the park and you, you know, 
And that was one of the uh, one of the sort of loopholes that was being explored. Uh, then Krasner was elected. The dialogue changed a little bit, and um, you know, I think that Jose Benitez and Prevention Point were always really looking towards this, um, but they were very, very, very quiet um, on the issue um, for for quite some time, uh, and left it to more radical elements of of the youth community to kind of take the lead. Um, and uh, full disclosure, I'm working on a documentary on the you know the the, the coming into being of Safe House. Uh, so uh, I've been spending a bit of time around Jose and Rhonda as well. So um, I guess, would you like to add anything to that that I missed out, Ab? Yeah, first of all, I can't wait to, to see that documentary. And, and yeah, I agree. I think that the task force is really important. They they brought, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe 17 recommendations or a, a large number of recommendations. One of them was um, a supervised injection site. They also... Um, got a study done, a cost-benefit analysis that, in my opinion, showed very, very conservative estimates. Uh, I think it was something between 25 to 75 lives saved for a one site with a few booths. It also showed that there's a lot of cost savings. And obviously, we all are familiar with the um, um, type of you know infections that were prevented um, um, hospitalizations and all that. I do think it's just for, for, for listeners who are not from the Philadelphia area and mainly actually listeners who um, might be in Canada and or abroad elsewhere, I think it's really important to understand how big the crisis here is in, here in Philly. So the announcement came in January of 2018. 2017, we had 1,200 people die of an overdose in Philadelphia. Uh, which is well, that's like three to four a day of people dying of overdose. Eighty-five percent of those were um, related to fentanyl. So, really, opioids, injection drugs are really the m- main driver uh, in much bigger proportion than it is nationally in, in the representation. You put that into perspective. Death. For the decades before that, it was roughly three hundred to four hundred a year. Um, you know, so that that's that's about where heroin fatalities were for for quite some time. Yeah, like I mean, I think putting those stakes out there into perspective, like it it is the clearest illustration of a crisis, like of an urgent crisis that needs like a, a solution now in in into sight, right? Because like we're all journalists, we all write about this a lot and the statistics kind of get numbing and the, and the so-called opioid epidemic and the overdose crisis, like these are words that we see every day and like what these words actually mean, like get uh, abstracted. And I think uh, that's why like we're doing this episode and talking about this big win because like the stakes could not be higher. Totally. And, And we were expected this year to celebrate a reduction from an estimated 1,217 to about an estimated 1,150, um, which probably, you know, is in a margin of error of um, of, uh, of account. And it's, a lot of people talked about how like a lot of the Narcan that was put out in outreach and was given away to, to folks on the street, mainly in Kensington, this neighborhood that is considered in many ways the epicenter of at least the visible crisis. Um, but we we got a reduction of set like with all the efforts, all the money, star grant, SOR grant, whatever grant, you know, all those stuff, like we reduced 70 deaths. So 
I, I think that there, the, the moral argument here, not that this is what we're talking about right now, but what is the excuse of not trying becomes really, really frustrating and becomes really, really important when just the death toll is so high and so sticky. And, and maybe like we should just talk about, yeah, like why not try something like a supervised injection site and sort of, I think, shedding, I don't know, a bit of light on like, why the move to sue safe house like to civil to bring them to court in like a civil suit or to have like rod rosenstein out in the pages of the new york times saying that they're going to go after people who try to do this like it's cruel i mean it it has like a, a tinge of cruelty to it like cruelty is the point of sort of this administration as sort of the the slogan goes I would point out, and I, and I don't think I'm disclosing anything that, that he probably wouldn't say publicly, but at least from Jose's perspective, um, this was the lesser of two evils to to take a civil approach um, rather than sort of just wait until they open and, you know, just go in there, start pulling people out. Um, it was probably the mildest of, of avenues if, if they were going to, you know, pursue an avenue at all. Um, that being said, uh, you know the legal the legal implications of a civil uh, ruling. Um, it, you know I don't know how tightly uh, it's, it's going to hold. Um, ultimately, you know Congress still has this law in the books. Um, it applies to a, a, a proportion of the population, but I think it's an important step towards making this dialogue uh, or elevating the dialogue into one that is now you know in courtrooms among people outside just this niche of harm reduction that we spend so much time in. And, and if I can add just like thinking like one step back on what do we mean when we say like there is this law in the books and when we say um, like the judge exact ruling. And, and I think that's really critical to, to the point of um, the fact that we're not 100% sure what this means long term and why this is not over yet um, is there's a lot of excuses to try to find legal reasons to, to prevent any activity. Right? We know that in criminal courts every day, people come in for something super minor they did and they have a, it looks like a rap sheet. They, you know, the, a prosecutor piled on them every charge possible. And you can, I think it's very similar to think about this activity in the same way. There's a lot of stuff that you can try to find and argue that it's illegal. And here, a judge found that a really specific, you know, subsection of a law, that crack house statute that you referred to, and does not apply to what Safehouse explained in an evidentiary hearing that they're planning to do. And that opens up, you know, heroin possession is still a federal, um, illegal under federal law. And you can try to think about other legal excuses to, to go criminally against it. The question is solely on that use of the law against a supervised injection site. So the question, again, when he says, that he was still basically does not recognize this ruling. Uh, although he said at the, when he announced originally the lawsuit, he said that he thinks that what needs to be done is to um, ask a federal judge if this is illegal or not, which he did. And he says, no, but you know, you can ignore past statements suddenly. Um, then yes, the, the question is like, what other tools exist out there to try and stop this from happening? Right. And that's what the uh, we still think these are illegal. And like, if you open one of these, we're still going to go after you like there. It sounds like 
I don't know. That's very ominous. <laughs> I don't know what tricks they have up their sleeve, but you know, it's they're, you know, very clearly signaling that like this is not over and they're not backing down. It's it's almost like they would do it just for the statement. Um, you know, I've talked to federal agents that don't have a personal problem with this. I've talked to beat cops on the street that don't that actually support it. Um, I think it's an image problem, perhaps. You know. Um, for a, an administration that that fancies itself hard on drugs, um, and being the first at anything controversial certainly sets you up uh, to be made an example of. Um, and and uh, I think that that politics would play more of a role than outright cruelty. However, um, you know there are certainly people that care very little for for drug addicted people. And, and let's be real, like, like specific. We're talking about it very specific subset of the drug using population that would, that would use a facility like this. Um, and so my question now, um, to everyone I encounter is now what would, what would stop you from using a facility like this? Um, Mm. to me, that's the interesting question. You know, um, we just assume, you know, if you build it, they'll, they'll come, but if you don't build it right, or you ask the wrong questions when they're coming through the door, they might not come back. Right. Um, so, um, that, you know, it's it's, it's going to be really interesting to see this experiment play out here. I think it's worth noting that uh, if Safe House were to open, it won't be the first supervised consumption site in the United States. At least one already exists. It's just underground. Um, there was this report on on the first year, the first four years of operation, and like uh, supervised consumption sites in the rest of the world, they had no fatal overdoses. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, it's so frustrating that this gets wrapped up in red tape when we have so much evidence that it works in other countries. And there's no reason to believe it wouldn't work here. Why why aren't we doing more to do this immediately? We have to argue about it so much more. And, and not to like rant, but there's nothing that annoys me more than hearing. I, I do think that there are valid concerns of people, mainly because it's something new that they don't maybe understand fully. And there is a lot of easy access to misinformation to, to, to scare people about what, you know, a, a supervisor set would or would look like. But I think that there's no argument that annoys me more than people saying, oh, it works in Canada, but, you know, America is not Canada. Philly is not Vancouver. Like it's, it's mu receptor opioid naloxone mu receptor like clears the receptor and be there in four minutes like that is not naloxone does not work different when you cross a border. Like, wait, wait, right? I think they can top that. Of what about what about it'll bring drug use to the neighborhood? <laughs> uh, <laughs> have you looked out your window lately? Wait, wait. When you flush a toilet in Philly, does it go right or go left? Because I hear that determines whether or not op- uh, naloxone works. Yeah, it's 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 like. If not having supervised injection sites worked, then how do we have 12, 1100 people dying every year in Philadelphia when we don't have a supervised injection site? Like, I remember once uh, Ryan McNeil, a great researcher that, um, um, uh, from Vancouver, uh, tweeted about how like, the opioid uh, overdose death in Canada, in British Columbia, um, stayed the same or dipped a little. He just tweeted something like, I guess we're out of bad policy ideas. We just did them all. And this is a little bit how this feels in Philly. Like, we, we did everything wrong. We, we, we did it all. So it's really hard to imagine us, you know, making it worse. It's kind of, you know, hard, hard to imagine, even if we didn't have 
literally hundred of, hundred of peer-reviewed journal articles that show that this will work. Yeah, and I, and I mean, I think Chris, you're right. Like, it does go back to to politics here. I mean, like, who had it on their you know 2019 bingo card that during the Trump administration there might be America's first supervised injection site opening? <laughs> Not on mine. And and I think just yeah. look at the resistance to marijuana reform. I mean, even under Obama. So, I mean, uh, yeah. And, and we still have policy being written by, well, now we've retroactively like adopted some of like the, the, the drug warriors that, you know, that, that, that created this whole mess in the first place. Yeah. It's, 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 um, it's astounding to me that, that we wouldn't just let this play out and see if you're opposed to it, watch it fail. And then wag your finger, right? <laughs> and then another thing that really bothers me is, is that McSwain in court many, many times said to the judge in oral arguments, when Congress says no, it means no. And it's like, why are we having this conversation? If you want to have this, go to Congress, tell them to change the law, add an exemption, whatever. Like, we have medical marijuana dispensaries in Philadelphia. Want to talk about an uh, establishment that is built, rented, leased for the purposes of selling a Schedule One drug? How is a medical marijuana dispensary not exactly a literal violation of the Krakow statute? But apparently when Congress says no, it doesn't mean no, because since was it in 2014, DOJ is not allowed to spend money appropriated by Congress to go after medical marijuana in legalized states. And for what was it, like six years, five years, the Cole memo existed that they weren't allowed to go after um, recreational marijuana. So, and ever since the session memo, we don't really see prosecutors going after medical marijuana, although they technically can. Yeah, he's, he's going to write the weed house statute now. <laughs> I, I asked McSwain about that, and he kind of like punted the question, um, busy saying, let's see when it happens. But this idea that we don't have arbitrary enforcement of the law is a lie. And it's important. It's a lie in everyday life. It's not about like drug policy, right? So the idea that he has to, or any prosecutor, has to go after this like one medical nonprofit is kind of ludicrous. And also, it's like kind of remember that the Krakow statute's penalty is 20 years in federal prison for opening, you know, for facilitating while heroin possession is a year, that doesn't seem to make a ton of sense either, right? Like, when we think about, do we actually believe that there's criminal, you know, behavior here? Which the answer is obviously not. And on the Krakow statute, should we maybe talk about, like, who exactly would face that 20-year uh, sentence were they to open? Like, whose name is going to be on that lease, right? Is, isn't that, like, a, a huge part of this? I think that's a great question because I, 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 I will say that I think if you take this in broad interpretations and let me pull up 21 USC 856 but um, the yeah it's, uh, it's, been a, it's been a long two, few months but because um, when you think about the word for example for example um, owner lease occupant to rent lease um for manufacturing, storing, like it's so many words here, and there's so many verbs that like one of them is even agent, owner, leasee, agent. So is the peer specialist that is you know 
sitting there reading a book and, you know, just has naloxone and, and maybe like greets people and hands out uh, um, a syringe. Like, is that the person who technically, you know, facilitated this drug use and suddenly faces 20 years in prison? So that's, again, I think that's like the disparity is, is, is a bit shocking. Um, so you can think of it as, as basically um, a, a, a statue that can let you go after anyone from the owner itself or, you know, to perhaps if agent means or occupant or, you know. Well, I think that's um, perhaps part of the clarification that, that Rhonda was speaking about uh, that I quote in my piece. And when I spoke to her last night, um, uh, you know, she she had a very patient uh, sort of, we're going to take this really slow because I think that this ruling has made it clear that Judge McHugh considers for the purpose of to not apply to the operators that are going to save or the medical personnel that would save lives, you know, but this could still put drug users in in jeopardy of a felony. Um, And so, you know, the question would come like, okay, so if, if it's not, if for the purpose of, you know, is saving lives, that doesn't mean that the people that are there using aren't still guilty of of a crime. So um, I think there was some concern in her voice about, you know, disrupting the lives of people that are already disrupted because that's the only avenue that might seem viable uh, as a, as a you know, in law enforcement approach. I mean, I would not put it past them to, or put it past law enforcement to, you know, trail people who walk in and out of a supervised injection site. Like they stalk methadone clinics and like, you know, if, if you drive up to a methadone clinic and get your dose and then leave, like you get pulled over two blocks later. Like that's something that happens all the time. Why would a, a supervised injection site be any different? So, yeah, I mean, I do think that like uh, it's it's a huge liability for, you know, any 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 user is, is like incredibly vulnerable. Um, we're this thing to open like there would have to be safeguards there would have to be a lot in place to to protect people and and that's one that uh, maybe you could speak to but in my conversations that's the that's the question that that has not yet been answered is how will the police handle this i mean we lost uh commissioner ross who was who went to vancouver who was who was who, who was at the press conference who basically took the law enforcement lead on this um his replacement, uh, I don't know much about. Maybe you do, Av. But, but uh, as far as I know, we we have yet to receive any sort of protocol for how law enforcement would handle this if there would be a perimeter, you know, um, that was sort of off limits. Um, so maybe maybe you could shed some light into that. But that is an, a question that, that a big question that that still remains. But then anywhere in Kensington, you could stop somebody uh, and probably find something on them most of the time. Yeah, I, I was about to, 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 to start with, with the latter. So, listen, McSwain went to visit Prevention Point. Again, when we talk about, you know, the lies, the lies, the lies, the law. And it's important to remember that, unfortunately, in Pennsylvania, syringe exchange exchanges do not have state authority. So when he went into Prevention Point, he went into an establishment that technically is violating state law. And he applauded that establishment in court multiple times. And he said, kind of like, stop doing safe house, continue to doing like the important work you do in prevention point. So I do think that um, it, it is interesting when you think about how um, 
let me say this differently. When we think about the fears that people have about a supervised injection site, in many ways, they're describing areas in places like Kensington right now, right? Like a place where drug use is normalized, whatever that means, that it's that in public, that there will be congregations of people who are um, using a, in, in public, that there'll be drop syringes, like that is the reality. Um, and if Philadelphia, and unfortunately I'm not you know, hoping for this because we saw that in Boston and this is not a good thing to do, but theoretically if Pennsylvania, if Philadelphia wanted to, and if they actually suddenly the office of the um, Eastern District of Pennsylvania cared about drug possession, they don't really need safe house for that. And there was a moment in the, that uh, Chris, you alluded to earlier, there was a moment in the hearing that the judge kind of set up different scenarios to, to McSwain to see how he will respond, whether or not it violates the lie. So like, oh, what if someone has a kid, like an adult kid, so like not a minor? And he said, I know that you're using, I know that you're an addiction. I rather, I want you to stop using, but come use in my home. So I have naloxone, you'll be safe. And is that violation of the crack house statute? And McSwain is like, no, because the drug use is incidental. The purpose of this house is like living there and they want them to stop. And he's like, okay, so what if it's a van? And he said, well, it's not a violation if no one comes inside the van, but if it just parks next to a park, let's say, and you know, you open the door and you look out, then it's not a problem. It's not a violation. It's not a violation. And that is the scenario that actually was brought up independently, like very early on, sort of very similar to that, you know, uh, as, as uh, I, there were so many little workarounds that people tried to come up with, you know, it was really interesting to see that happen. Like overdose stakeouts? Yeah, basically. So then someone asked, what if there was a window? I don't remember if, if uh, that was brought by the judge or by um, um, the uh, safe house lawyer, but basically the, the argument was like, so what if, what if there was a really big window outside of, in Prevention Point that like, had like a door, whatever, like a glass door, and Prevention Point gave you a syringe, the syringe exchange, and said, go use outside. <laughs> I'm looking from here. But you're not on the premises, so there's no crack house involved, right? Is that a violation of 856, of the crack house statue? What if there was a little cluster of people underneath a bridge by the Conrail tracks and harm right. <laughs> And and they, and they give it and they gave it a nickname, maybe a Spanish-sounding nickname. <laughs> yeah, and and it's it's just funny because those are exactly the things that the residents are Kensington are so afraid of, right? But now we have the law and order prosecutor essentially advocating for public injection and for encampments because there's no ownership of property, so it's legal. So you, so because it's only possession now, so he doesn't care. So. In a weird way, you have harm reductionists trying to bring this in and remove, and I apologize for the use of word, but like this notion of like a nuisance, right? Like that it's on the street, not the people, but the fact that a street became a place where people are injecting drugs. And you have the law and order of harm reductionist, um, sorry, war on drugs warrior comes and say, no, 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 stay outside. This is good. And the world is upside down and on fire. It's great that you brought up Prevention Point because, like you said, it's not technically legal, just like cannabis shops are not technically legal. Um, but the, the law can, you know, make exceptions in that case. And it's not a big leap in logic to go from here, have this syringe, I know what you're going to do with it, you're going to inject drugs with it, 
here, have it. At least it's clean. At least it's, um, yeah. And then you just kick them out. But providing a room in a syringe uh, access program is is not that big of a leap, you know? Well, oh, you're going to use this for this drug? Okay, well, why don't you do it somewhere I can watch you and I can make sure that you have naloxone and oxygen to revive you? So actually, I think there's an argument to be made even that you would think if you try to reverse engineer the logic of a drug warrior, that it would be the exact opposite, that a syringe exchange would be a radical idea because you're allowing people to take something out and use it wherever they want. But a supervised ejection site would be the conservative idea because you're controlling it. Like a methadone clinic is a conservative idea and buprenorphine is the radical idea as if because you're taking it home. And like you can think about it as like methadone that if for three months you you know are good enough, they, they some states will allow you to take take-homes. You can think about almost like the drug warrior saying, let's have supervised injection sites and then the good ones can have take-home syringes. So You can make the argument they would keep syringes off the streets because right. they wouldn't right. be able to take them. I mean, I, I definitely know people who are sort of, you know, to the left even of supervised injection sites where they think that this is another form of surveillance, another form of control, like much like methadone clinics. And and like, you know, I, I, I get that. Like, I get that feeling like, you know, why would I want to walk into, a, you know, a, a, a private institution or a state funded institution and and, you know, hand over any information or whatever and, and, and do this activity like you're vulnerable, you're 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 open to, you know, who knows what. And so I know people who don't like supervised injection sites for that kind of reason. But, you know, I think maybe we all agree that, like, uh, with with the right people running it, like people like, you know, Prevention Point or, or whoever, like they're, you know, they're not the state. They're not like it's not like it's not like when you walk into a cannabis dispensary that like, you know, I don't like handing over my ID. I'm like, what are you doing with my ID? Like, where's this information going? Like, are you is there like a database I'm going in? Like, like, I don't like handing that information over. But, you know, that's why I think back to Chris, your point, like who is running this and and what kind of protections are built in there? What kind of trust is built in there? Like it isn't really the case that if you build it, they will come. There has to be buy in from the user community like like that. That was a key takeaway from what I learned reading like Travis Lupick's book about the the fight for supervised injection sites insight in, in Vancouver is that without buy-in, without Vandu, like the the drug user union and organizing, without them, no one would have used it. And that's 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 been really critical in in um, you know, as as I said, it's it's always my, you know, how high on the, your list of priorities is a, is overdose. Uh, you know, what would prevent you from using and, and there and there's cultural distinctions like that you wouldn't know if you weren't out on the street. You know, um, there's a there's a there's a, a tradition among Latino users to hit each other. You know, the service. Uh, you know, Av, you know what I'm talking about. Um, presumably, this won't be allowed. Um, mm-hmm. There are it people. Won't. It won't. There's people that can't hit themselves. Um, there's females that have to take that have to be somewhat disrobed to be able to find a, a vein. Um, you know, uh, I think that Prevention Point did it well. They they would give you an anonymous number, uh, you know. I mean, like I guess they kind of know who you are, but I, I don't know. I guess if the, you know if somebody wanted to come in and start making lists, you know, we're all fucked. But 
you know, uh, so yeah. Don't, that, don't like registries, not a fan. <laughs> the, 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 the critique I hear is not so much like the Big Brother critique, but that it needs to be low barrier, right? So um, I've heard the critique that you don't need a doctor, really. Like that's just a waste of money. Um, you know, uh, peers and, and maybe a nurse practitioner or nurses are capable of doing that. Um, that might just be, you know, there's there's political viability, you know, and one of like treatment is a big one. Like we're, we're you know, we, we're clearly this could not have happened if if like we're offering treatment too. It wasn't a component of it. I don't believe it would be we would be where we are necessarily. Um, so yeah, the the barriers to to use, and it's a subset of the population that hey, look, if you have a car that you know, there's a good chance you're still gonna just not want to like go through the process and. You know, you're late to work. You're not going to want to wait the 20 minutes or whatever. Uh, so, those are things that'll that'll come out, I suppose, as as this goes on. Yeah, I talked to I I wrote a piece about um, talking to people around the world in, in places that have supervised injection sites or that tried and and um, had issues uh, like in, in Mexico, in Mexico, and and I, I thought that the experience from Ottawa, I, I talked to and I. Sorry if I am butchering the name, but um, with Taliesin Cahill, who is on on Twitter, she's great. Uh, but she's a nurse and she works at uh, um, a supervised injection site in Ottawa that that is kind of similar to Prevention Phone Safe House in the sense that there it's actually in the same building. So now we're talking about a completely different facility, but it it was the same building as the syringe exchange and the community health center. And there were a lot of relationships. So they expected that they would open the door on day one for the SIF consumption room and that there would be a line, you know, uh, out the door. And that definitely did not happen. And there was very low interest at the beginning. And one of the things that she told me that I thought was brilliant was that it's, and again, you know, alcohol is so culturally, um, uh, prevalent that I think I think this might resonate with some folks who who drink, but um, that usually you don't go to a bar because you know you read a review or something. You go to a bar because a friend of yours told you that they went to that bar, and you know the crowd, and you know who are the other people who will go to that bar, and who you will meet in the bar, or who you won't meet at the bar, and kind of like it becomes a social habit in your world, in your social world, to go to that specific bar and not you know, one of 10 other sports bars that are kind of the same in every American city. So for her, it was the same kind of thing. There were the few brave first ones. And then there became a social component, a community that were like, this is okay. Like, you won't see that person here or you won't, you know, give this information. You won't be asked this question or you will be comfortable. And questions about time, they became really busy. And finally, they needed to say like how much time you can stay in your um um your cube thing you know um and that was that that could be an issue for some people who don't want to feel rushed or stressed so so i do think like we need to think about this as any social place uh, with all the vulnerability um that comes with it and i also totally agree uh, for chris's point about the medicalization of it so if there's generally can divide supervised sites to the um social model and the medical model I definitely think that this like medicalization of addiction and the disease model that you all covered so so well and critically, um, it resonates. And and I, I was in Dublin and I went to visit their site as they're building it, and it was the same thing. It was like this has to be super medical. This has to be a tiny hospital because if it won't be, people won't buy it. 
Like, this is how it has to be. And I think that's very similar here. If you talk about, like, the only person on staff is a peer support and specialist, well, then is it a medical intervention? You know? When we talk about the cookies, you know, like, is that what we need? And there's, and there's been a push to actually have this in a hospital um, here in Philly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're right. It's, it, so is it the sterilization of it, like, what, it could be like a coffee shop with comfy chairs, you know? It, says, it doesn't have to be that way. But, um, yeah, I suspect it will be maybe something in between. But uh, yeah, hopefully there won't be men in white coats meeting you at the door. <laughs> Yeah, but like that 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 white coat effect though. The I think that's like an actual real thing. Like people definitely like trust their doctor, right? Like but uh changing gears a little bit here. Uh so like a lot of questions uh are like now what? Okay, so we got this ruling. What happens now? And so um so I I'd want to read a, a tweet from uh, Jeff Dini, who's also, you know, a Philly guy. And he tweeted out, uh, you know, sort of like about the about the ruling and, and like what comes next. He said, quote, my concern, which I stated prior to this last trial, is that the appeal takes the case to a more conservative branch of the circuit. I think the decision will will be judge dependent. The government is hoping to pull a judge with the more favorable politics and they may get that. So this is basically like, okay, so let's say the appeal and it goes to the third circuit, you know, that, that there could be really conservative judges on the third circuit. So, or the ninth circuit, which everyone thinks is like the liberal circuit. So yeah, like what happens now is sort of, uh, an open question and, you know, Chris or Av, I don't know, you know, where, where you're on the, what, what, you know, people in Philly are thinking about that. Um, I, I will. I could go first on the on the just the the, the mechanics of, of what happens next, and, and and what happens next according to safe house personnel is that they they need to clarify a couple things with the judge. And I didn't I did not press on what those issues were, and it's not necessarily going to be a formal clarification. It may take the form of just an informal phone call, um, and then where there was, I think, I was getting the feeling, and 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 I believe even you know was told that, that that there would you know there was an ability to open pretty quickly um i think there may be a bit of, of cooling off period um and then we'll see that we'll see this i i would imagine you know operational certainly by the new year uh there's also um i heard uh well i've been told another site plan so we're, we're looking at two sites now um one in a different part of the city uh on the legal question uh i'll tip that to you uh Yes, I, I think I think it's a real question. First of all, what matters more now—the legal question or the, the 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 community buy-in question? Because just like a police, you know, patrol or outside of a site can have a um, cooling effect that might make some people not go. Imagine if uh, outside of the site looks like um, Planned Parenthood, and there are people every day outside protesting, right? Or just like taking photos of people walking in. And we saw that, right? We had like the Kensington Beach Instagram account. I don't know if you followed like this idea of people allowing themselves to 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 take photos of people who are using or asleep or overdosed and in Kensington is it's a real phenomenon. And so I think there's a lot of ways to um, make the site less uh, effective 
a, a side of law. On the, the exact question of the law, I think that it's it's hard. You know, the tea leaves of judges are super hard. It's important to remember that Safe House had a whole other set of arguments of a religious um, um, component to, you know, they're doing this from a Judeo-Christian belief. There is a lot of, um, and there is um, case law that there are exemptions to federal law, uh, federal drug law, um, based on religious belief, like the ayahuasca case. And so I, so I do think that there is a lot of openings for both liberal judges and conservative, especially libertarian. We know the Cato Institute is all in on this. And so I think it's hard. A lot of times I feel like the liberal judges are the ones who maybe are more willing to have, you know, the patronizing state for the purpose of this, like cliche, obviously, for the purpose of a you know, better health behaviors and imposing soda portion caps or whatever, right? And on the other hand, you can have sort of like a more libertarian judge that throws a bit of a you-do-you interpretation of drug law and the general footprint of the federal government on human behavior. And that could be beneficial. So I really think it depends on kind of like a like super individualized judges. I don't think that there's a clear conservative versus liberal and look at Pennsylvania. We have agreement between the um, Democrat, um, that is Attorney General Josh Shapiro, that is suing Trump every other day for something else as a part of like the hashtag resistance, uh, who just came in support of recreational marijuana. Yeah, he tweeted it out. <laughs> yeah, 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 you know. Um, never a dull state, the Keystone State here, never a dull day. Um, so, and on the other hand, he's essentially in agreement with McSwain on federal law and surprise injection sites. So it's hard for me to know wh- where we're falling. I think that uh, McHugh was a very thoughtful judge. And when you read, you know, uh, there are parts of his of his opinion that are just like so thoughtful and like so like really um, uh, show that he understood and captured exactly what they're trying to do. And so I think that would be the key. It, I don't think the political leaning of a judge will be what um, will determine this, but I think any... I genuinely believe that anyone who engages with the concept of harm reduction and genuinely engages with the evidence cannot be believe that there is any criminal behavior here. I just, I refuse to believe that. But I think there's a lot of judges out there that will not try. But like also just imagine this going to the Supreme Court and them interpreting and thinking really hard about the crack house statute. Like that law is so vague. And like you said, it has all these verbs. Like it, it is honestly like the, the shittiest law like I've ever read. Like I, like a fifth grader could, could write a better law than the crack house statute. Just like imagine like these brilliant. A, 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 fifth, a fifth grader named Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like ima- imagine like these like brilliant legal scholars like taking their like critical legal eye to the crack house statute it's almost a joke and the law is racist too i mean i think that's worth mentioning it's also racist against raves which is bullshit <laughs> no i think i think i think yes the law is racist but i think that the rave component is interesting and I think the law just represents it's so vague that it's the perfect conduit for the moral panic of an era. So in the 90s and the 80s, it was crack houses and like, you know, properties of black people. And then in the 2000, it was like 
parties because that was the moral panic of the day. And then like now it's supervised injection site and tomorrow they'll find a reason to apply that on like Juul or whatever, right? Because you find what you're panicking about and you apply the statue to. Yeah, no, that's exactly like the perfect way to think about the crack house statue. It morphed into the rave act and now it's being used against supervised injection. Yeah, it's, it is like this weird mutated thing that yeah, Joe Biden wrote in 1986, like how this stupid law is still uh, in play in our discourse is astonishing. Well, well fun fact, there's still a Carter appointee on the Third Circuit <laughs> appeal. And uh, I did forget this, but we don't want it to go before Stefanos Bibas, who was from, uh, I, I believe, from the University of Penn. Mm-hmm. Who I wrote a scathing critique of a piece he wrote. He's like an extreme moralist on prison and prison reform and basically thinks that you like he's in the old dickens model of uh of uh, re, you know, retribution and punishment and reentry and all that so uh interesting other other than that um you know it's a lot it's, it's like like uh, i've said i mean uh you know the free the free speech case that that, that dan denver and i were plaintiffs on the mumia act um the, the mumia abu jamal went before uh, a Reagan appointee, I believe it was. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it was, that was a con- to a conservatives that should have been an affront and that judge ruled appropriately. Um, as a state's rights issue, um, you would hope that, that conservatives would, would buy in on that. It, it, it is terrifying. I also think it's worth remembering that, like, uh, as much as it's, you know, easy to harp on, like, Trump appointee and Trump's DOJ and Rod Rosenstein, like, it's unclear to me what happens if a uh, president, you know, Booker, Buttigieg, probably not Buttigieg, but maybe and Biden, obviously, or Harris um, is a Democrat in January 2021, takes over the White House. And it's unclear to me what that Justice Department does with this lawsuit. Um, and I think that is something that is very disappointing on the left, that you do not see progressives, even though that you know, Warren and Sanders gave them their nod and one-liners in their um, in their policy papers. This has not become a rallying cry, even though, you know, again, 1,200 of some of the most marginalized people in Philadelphia die every year. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. Our co-producer is Aaron Ferguson, who has just been killing it lately, and our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music by Pictures of the Floating World. Narcotica is sponsored by Billy Bob's Big Long Slong Shape Bongs. Just kidding. That's a made-up product, I hope. In all seriousness, we don't want to clutter this program with stupid ads. So thank you so much to our Patreons who help keep this program free from corporate influence. We couldn't do it without you. If you want to help us out, join dozens of pro-drug advocates on our Patreon. Or help us get the word out. Give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We're finally on Spotify! Tell your friends about us and carve our name into the bathroom mirror at Burger King. If you want to send us a suggestion, tell us about the medical benefits of cocaine, or just want to say hi, you can email us at tips at narcocast.com. That's all for now. Take care. <laughs>